we're going to be taking a look this morning uh, at the Gospel of John, this ancient account of the story of Jesus, this, this disciple of Jesus who followed uh, and walked around behind Jesus, who, who saw the things that Jesus did, and, and in his old age, reflecting back on just what that life meant what the movement of the kingdom that Jesus started, and, and to reflect back on those moments and times. And today, he, he continues a story we started last week, this story that proves to be a, a deciding line for this crowd of people, people who, who flocked around this man who could do these supernatural miracles. But, but there comes a point, there comes a, a time that, that when he calls them to follow him in faith, that while they're impressed, they will choose to leave. And so we're going to take a look at this passage today because in many of the ways it's easy to be impressed with Jesus, but it's a whole lot harder to follow after him. So we're going to be reading here from the Gospel of John chapter 6, and we're going to pick up the story here in verse 22. Jesus, after he had, had fed 5,000 people and, and had skirted away to a different city, to the, the, the city of Capernaum uh, by night, the crowd comes to follow him. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that, the, that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And soon other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, and after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to, endure, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things to, in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the, Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, the words that you preached in this sermon are, are words that can in many ways meld in our mind and, and flow in such a way that, that we lose sight of their actual meaning. We lose sight of the offense and of the excitement. We lose sight of the reality that you preached, that you lived, that people might truly live. Lord, we pray that your people here today might believe and that might taste that life that you have promised us. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know I'm a little early to get started on Thanksgiving, uh, but once I start seeing the pumpkins all around, it's an inescapable conclusion, right? The the culmination of, of fall, the culmination of this cooler weather is, of course, that, that blessed moment when you take that first bite of pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving Day. Maybe it's just me, though. Maybe it's uh, that, that this uh, pie is emblematic to me of these Thanksgivings as a kid, the, the final touch to this big feast at grandma's house, a feast that would be promptly followed by a trip to, to the lazy boy and, and sit there. My, my grandparents, they always have had these really big, obnoxious, like lazy boy recliners that have like the built-in massage chair on them. And as a kid, this is like the highlight of your life. And, and um, I'm basically the only person in my family who eats pumpkin pie. Everyone else is distracted by that chocolate stuff or whatever. But pumpkin pie, after I've finished half of it, because I'm the only one eating it, to, to, to sit in that chair, right, on a Thanksgiving day is to, to be told in my body and to be told in my mind that all is well, right? That all is well in the world, that things are the way that they're supposed to be, that while I may not have like the, the, the most idyllic relationship with my family at all times, right? There with that food in that place, right? That feeling of home tells me that all is well. It's kind of the relationship we have with food, isn't it? We, we, we eat when we're stressed, we're, we're, when we're sorrowful, when we're angry. We, we go for the ice cream or we go for the comfort food, right? Because there's something about food. There's something about the feeling of fullness that tells our brains things are going to be okay. Things are going to be all right. That these needs, the, the aches and the pains that I'm experiencing in this life, that there is a way for it to be well, right? We, we try to do that in our sorrow. We do that in our joy, though, too, right? We gather at our festivals and our holidays, and the centerpiece of all of those moments is this full feeling, the feeling once that food, whatever that food is, is consumed, and, and the ache of your stomach goes away. And it's no coincidence, then, that Jesus, after the day after he has fed this crowd, this miraculous meal, this miraculous meal where, where he took bread and, and fish, and he multiplied it amongst the crowd that, that everyone ate, and not just they ate a meal, but they ate till they were full. They ate till there was an overwhelming amount left over. And they come and, and they chase after him because he's left town. And they come and Jesus says, look, y'all are just here because you want more. You want that feeling of homeness. You want that feeling that everything is going to be okay. And here in the beginning, Jesus takes that image, that illustration, that feeling of full, meaning that everything is right with the world. And he says, I've got something better for you. I've got something better for you than the bread that you have to eat over and over and over again. I have something better for you 
than the bread that you eat to cover up the ceiling, the sense of loneliness, the sense of shame, the frailty of life, the longing for more, the reasons that you miss eat. I've got something more. He tells them in verse 27, he says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There's a different kind of food, and one you don't have to eat every day over and over and over again, that there is a food that meets the needs that you feel most deeply. That there are longings that could be answered when, in verse 33, God gives the bread of life. When God gives, he who comes down from heaven and brings real life. And the people respond. The people respond as you would imagine them would. If, if someone came and, and said that there is a way that these aches and these cravings, these longings which dominate and control your life, that there is a real and true fulfillment to those. That God could provide even a, a, a person that could, that could be that blessing, that could be that perpetual sort of life, that life and faith in Jesus is this feeling of fullness. And the people in verse 34 said, Sir, give us this bread and give it to us always. Now. Don't wait. Now. Give it to us now. We want this. We long for this. And yet the next words that happen. As they gather in their excitement, as they've chased him down, as they long to be fed, they long to be full. And then Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life in verse 35. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look, Jesus says, look, you want this? I'm here. I'm here in front of you. I'm here in your face. And once these people have been told that they have the opportunity to have all that they ever asked for, a crisis of faith arises. A crisis of faith because they say, wait, you? You are the bread of life? Well, you're saying that, that you are the answer to the longings that I feel. That you are the answer to what God is doing in the world. That you, Jesus... That you are the one who come down from heaven? Jesus, you got to be kidding me. We know your mom and your dad. We know your story and we know who you are. This couldn't possibly be the case. Jesus has offered these people all that they longed for. He offered them the provisions of life in God's world and instead of getting the response of applause, instead of getting the response of joy and giddy excitement, the response is to doubt. The response for most of them at the end of this passage is to pick up their bags and their feet and go walk a different way. Why? Why? What is it about Jesus saying that I am the bread of life that drives them away? What is it about Jesus saying, feed on me, that sends them in a different direction? Well, I suppose like most things 
the, the devil, or the, at least the appearance of the devil, is in the details. So we're going to take a look here this morning at two things, two reasons that faith, to believe in the Son of Man, the, 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 the two reasons why this crowd will express doubt, the reason that this crowd will express that this is unacceptable, what Jesus has said, because I think in their words we can often find our own. And if our desire is to find life, not the life that we feel for a, an hour and then we have to eat again, but the life that endures for all time, if we're to find that, then we must learn to believe where these saints, where these folks failed. We must learn to believe along with the disciples as they proclaimed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the first thing that we already talked about is that, is that these saints, when Jesus, I mean these saints, these, these people, when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, they said that declaration is utterly ridiculous. The first reason that they have to doubt that Jesus is telling them what is true is that it was so preposterous. You are a man. A man whose father and mother we know, you, you are trying to tell us that you have come down from heaven. We have evidence of exactly the opposite of what you're claiming to be. We have evidence that tells us that this story you're telling, this claim that you're making is absolutely absurd. Jesus Christ comes and he tells this group of skeptics and he says, here's what you need to believe. You need to believe that God has sent me from heaven for the provision of life for the world. Like if we were to line up all of the like declarative statements in there, all the things that needed to be proved, right? If we were uh, good uh, disciples of Descartes, right? Like all of the, the, the things that Jesus just assumes for them to believe, the things he it's incredible the number of, of, of the, the statement, what it holds in it. In our world today, there's so many things in there that, that it's preposterous to believe, right? Jesus assumes the existence of an immaterial world. He assumes the existence of a benevolent God, right? To say, I am the bread of life, no one who does not eat of me does not have life, is to claim an exclusivity, Right? An exclusivity that he is and only he can be the life of the world. And so we look at Jesus and we say, that's, that's a little too much. It's a little too much for, for you to expect rational uh, people to follow along with this claim. This claim that you're making is ridiculous. And if you're here this morning and, and faith is not a part of your story, you're also going to be, be taking uh, uh, a look at what Jesus says here. And you're going to be saying not just that his claim is ridiculous, but that the faith that he's proposing is ridiculous. Because you see in verse 43, Jesus responds to them, right? They say, Jesus, you can't be the bread of heaven because we know you didn't come from heaven. Or at least they thought they knew he didn't come from heaven. And Jesus, rather than describing to them the virgin birth, Jesus, rather than trying to insinuate and, and explain to them just how it was that he came from heaven, 
He didn't pontificate on the mystery of the incarnation. What he says to them in verse 43, or in verse 44, is that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. As is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. You see, in order to believe in Jesus and thus to receive life, Jesus says you need to be able to listen. You need to be taught by God. You need to be told something is true about the world, something that you cannot see, something that you cannot prove. And to you and I who live in the world as it was to these people, this is a deeply unsatisfying explanation. We want the empirical proof, right? We want the explanation. Are we really, really just supposed to take your word for it? Faith is uh, this blind faith is what drives uh, the, the non-religious person absolutely crazy, right? This is exactly what it is. It's so bonkers about Christianity. But in reality... Isn't that exactly the way we should expect it? In reality, isn't that the way that that faith always works? Let's do this by example, right? So um, one of the things you'll see most often, right, in, in if you are waste time on the Internet like me, right, is you'll see all these bogus articles that will say, like, science has proved this. Science says this, right? And, and they say that because we believe scientists right we believe their words and and if you asked a doubting person you would say well why do you believe it right why do you believe it and they said well because you can see it right you can run the experiment and you can see the the answer to 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 what happens but is that true is that true in today's scientific world right so if if i was to uh to take you along right and say you would and we start talking about black holes, right? We start talking about string theory. Or we start talking about subatomic particles, right? I could, I could send most of you an actor who learns a few terms, and you would be nodding your head. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true, right? If you went with them to the, the Large Hadron Collider in, at CERN, right, in Geneva, Switzerland, this one place with the most brilliant minds in the world and billions of dollars of equipment, right, you would not be able to see anything. You would go and you would say, I want to find the proof. I want to see the empirical evidence for these claims of what they've found. But you would go and, and you would see nothing. Because subatomic particles are being spin, spun around and collided together. The machines are so complex, the, the detection machines are so complex that there's not a person in this room who could operate them or run them. Maybe very few of us are even able to understand the dumbed-down version of the dumbed-down version of the dumbed-down version of what it is that they've claimed, right? And yet you believe it. And you believe it for good reason. Right, because the people who run those billions of dollars of machines have spent their lives devoted to, to learning and understanding the, these subatomic particles, to the way they move and, and behave. These scientists who run this machinery are believable. They're believable because of 
who they are. They're believable because of the power of the machines that they're operating. They're believable because they know what they're talking about. But you don't. You know, have no idea what they're talking about. And yet, if they came and they told you uh, that we have discovered this particle, you would not doubt them for one second. If we can believe these scientists, right? We can believe these scientists because of the power of the machines that they have. How much more power is the claim of, claims of God have behind them? If God comes and says to you, this is the way the world works, how much more knowledge does he have of the universe than those scientists do? How much more strength does he have to move things? Right? We believe in the scientists because they, their models seem to reflect and, and demonstrate just how the world works, the material world works. We believe in what God says about reality because his claims about the way uh, that life works. That love is not just this fantasyful idea in our brains. That morals aren't just ideas that we make up, right? That consciousness comes from a place. We believe these things because God has so worked in the world that it shows us he knows what he's talking about, even if we don't understand it. In order to be able to believe when God says to, to us that Jesus is the God who brings heaven to us. In order to believe God when he says Jesus is the life of the world is to believe that there is truth that is outside of our understanding. That there is a complexity to which we can't fathom what it is. That there is ingrained in the world truth we don't understand. In verse 62, Jesus will say exactly this. The question is not, how can you prove this claim? The question is, is, is it true? And could it be that God is telling us a truth that we can't discover on our own? Could it be that God is telling us the truth of what are, is needed for life and hope? So the first thing we need to be able to receive the testimony, the first thing that we need to be able to receive what God has told us to find the life at the end is to be able to be taught by God, to hear and to believe the story that he's teaching us. But there's more here than just uh, doubting the truth of what Jesus claims. Jesus will go on and, and he will tell these people who re repeat over against himself again, and he'll say, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Again, down at the bottom, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Which brings us to the next point. Jesus isn't just making a ridiculous sounding claim. Jesus is making a repulsive claim. Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and unless you drink his blood, you have no life 
in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, now you are, are you've heard me talk about this table like a lot of times, right? So this, uh, these words don't sound quite as preposterous, quite as disgusting to you as the original audience, but these people who came because they were hungry for bread, there's nothing that quite kills an appetite like cannibalism, right? Like if you come to Jesus and you're going, hey, that guy gave me some bread yesterday, maybe he'll give me bread again today, and then he starts talking about cannibalism, things start going unsettled in your tummy real quick, right? There's a, a, a disgusting and an abrupt, and you remember that these folks are Jews, right? Jews who, who didn't just eat any meat. Jews who were forbidden from ever drinking blood of any animal at all, right? And you start hearing Jesus say to them, this is what is needed for you, is to eat my flesh, to drink my blood. And you start going, that's creepy, Jesus. It's disgusting, Jesus. That is a, 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 an image that makes no sense. But one of the reasons it makes no sense is that when we think about what we need in this life, when we think about what is needed for our world in this life, the violence and gruesomeness of what Jesus is describing isn't on our list because death is not on our list. The idea when Jesus tells them that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus, inherent in those words, is saying that there is a death that must occur in order for life to begin. This is preposterous to us because we think of the things we need in the life or what we think this is what the world needs. Right? We need um, people who are nice to one another. We tell ourselves, right? What we need in life is, is a good, like, pay-it-forward philosophy. What we need in life is a, a good vibes, positivity. And if we have those things, then, then we will feel okay about ourselves, and our world will reap the benefits. And we think, this problem doesn't require the gruesomeness and bloodiness and grossness of what Jesus is talking about. But if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that our positivity and good vibes usually means they come because we've cut off and excluded and abandoned those things or those people who are toxic, or who don't do what we like or don't say what we want them to say. Right? When we, we pay it forward, often what we're doing is only perpetuating the systems of injustice and imbalance uh, that gives that got us the problems that we had to begin with. To say, be a nice person, what we really mean more often than not is, uh, is a quid pro quo, right? To, that I'm going to be nice to the people who are going to be nice to me in return. And so all the things that we say would make the world a better place, the things that will become taglines on, on talk, morning talk television or, or on the radio, these things all fail to address the primary and core needs of our bodies and our souls and our society. What Jesus is saying when he says, you must come and eat my flesh and drink my blood, is to say that the fulfillment of good life can only come once the evil has been cut off. 
And of course, we know the end of the story, right? We know where Jesus is headed. We know the idea that Jesus is planting in this crowd's mind is because we know that Jesus is going to take the butcher knife to himself. But far too often, we don't want to think that the evil in us, that the evil in our worlds, the things that bring about the hunger, that bring about the pain, that bring about the loneliness, we don't want to think that our rebellion against God is so dire that it requires the blood sacrifice Jesus is describing here. We don't want to rest upon Jesus because we think that's not really necessary. The other thing about this uh, declaration, this description, this picture that Jesus gives these people that unnerves us and unsettles us is not just its gruesomeness and its violence, but also its, its intimacy. Look with me at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. Jesus, uh, using this picture of food, and, and it's, it's this literal picture in your brain of, of the food that you eat and your connection to that food, it becomes a part of your body, right? It's an indwelling uh, substance in you that is not found from you but came from the outside in to say when Jesus says, if you eat my blood and if, and if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus is saying, I've got you and you've got me. And while in a spiritual sense we think, oh, that sounds really nice and that sounds really cute and it sounds quaint and it sounds warm and, and cozy, the reality is, is that we kind of naturally in our world today, our, our native tongue is to speak of independence, to speak of freedom, right? In our society, the native beliefs of our land, fulfillment of life, true, good, beautiful life only comes when we bring it for ourselves, right? What do we write in the Declaration of Independence, right? The life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? We need to be free from the constraints of the outside world so that we can find true inner fulfillment. And what Jesus says is if you want to try to find fulfillment, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to not tie yourself and unite yourself with me. To eat my blood and to drink my flesh is to declare yourself that you are not your own. To believe in Jesus is not just to think, hey, this crazy story the Bible tells me might be true. It requires that, but it requires much more. It requires that you take the story of the Bible and you make it your story. It requires that you say, I will die with Jesus. That in his flesh and blood, in his death, we will be united body and soul and mind because at the end of the story is what real life is. And that's where the trouble comes, isn't it? That's where it's really hard, is when the things that you think bring fulfillment, and Jesus says to cut it out. When the things you think will bring you joy and peace and, and God leads you through a season of heartache and sorrow, a season 
of bleeding. When the world that you think will bring you the utmost of, of happiness and joy and God invites you to come and to give up of yourself that you might find what real liberty is. God invites you to put all your apples into one basket. The basket of himself. To believe in Jesus when he tells you to eat of his blood and to eat of his flesh is to rely your very life and your livelihood and your substance and your relationships upon him. Because he tells us that he is the food that leads us to eternal life. He is the one who leads us to the fullness of life. And so the question at the end of Jesus' sermon, the question he didn't need to even ask is the question of will you believe? Will you believe in this story that might sound so fantasyful but is bears all the marks of authenticity. Will you believe in Jesus, not just in, in its veracity, but also in its applicability to your life? Will you believe in Jesus? The answer for most of us, the answer for most people, it tells us in verse 66, who were there listening to Jesus preach that day, is to say that after this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. And so Jesus turns to his twelve. Jesus turns to those who knew him best, who walked with him the longest. He turns to these people and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? Are you willing to take this faith? Are you willing to entrust your life and your mind to it? Are you willing to follow and Peter answers with his famous line, To Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the source and the substance. You are the one who sets a table, and it's not filled with uh, delicious pumpkin pie, right? It's not taste filled with the... the, the um, your grandma's homemade dressing. It's not filled with a roasted turkey. It's filled with Jesus. A Jesus whose blood and whose flesh were given that your sins might be forgiven. Whose life was given that you might join with him in his new kingdom. On this table and in these words, Jesus is inviting us to a food that will nourish you to eternal life. That's the food we need. Join with me in prayer. God, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us and give us eyes to see just what you are doing in the world. And Lord, the, the, the claims that you make on us, the claims that you make on our world can sound preposterous to us. Lord, the claims that you make on, on what life with you looks like sounds like the very contradiction of what it is that we want. And yet, Lord, you tell us that you have made life and that you desire for us to taste it. 
not the fake version that we come up with ourselves, but with the real way that we were made, the life you made us to taste. Father, would we find you in faith, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.